Kathy for that beautiful rendition of How Great Thou Art. That is why we've gathered here today is to remind ourselves of the greatness of God. Uh, we have certainly each walked into the room with certain things on our heart or on our mind. And what we're doing together as a church family is we are drawing our attention to his greatness. So we walk in the room, who knows what it could be, a group this size and knowing that there's people online. It could be anything from grieving the loss of a loved one to uh, a marriage in crisis. There could be family issues just within your immediate network of family or a greater network of family. There's conflict. People could be battling sickness or disease. There could be financial pressures. It is uh, January in Pittsburgh, so it could be depression and discouragement. Um, it could be uh, anxiety, some confusion and frustration about what's going on in your life. We might have anxiety about the future. You might be one of these people uh, that watches the news um, too much. And you might be anxious about what you hear and what you see. And you might be wondering, oh, what's happening to the world or what's happening to the country or what about the morality that should be here as, as Christians and what should we do? And, and maybe whatever your context, you come into the room this morning with a bit of anticipation that hopefully the pastor will speak to one of these issues. You say, here I am. It would be really helpful if he were to teach us something about how to deal with conflict in a marriage or give us some tips on how to resolve some of these financial pressures I feel. Help me understand the anxiety I feel about the nation and, and the direction we're headed in. All those types of things, right? We're like, I hope he can talk about that today. But I'm sure you can appreciate the fact that it's very difficult to speak to each one of those issues every single Sunday, isn't it? So that strategy can be a hard one to keep and to keep everyone happy. And so what we do is we gather here every week, but this week specifically, is we are going to gather not to focus on each of our own particular issues that we brought into the room. We have come together to focus on how great our God is. And so we start off saying, oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. You see, when you see those things in nature, it just naturally draws on your heart to be like, oh wow, there is someone bigger than me. What a great and awesome God I serve. Hopefully then from creation, you're drawn into not just how great a God there is, but how that great God saw you and loved you. And so the writer writes the second stanza, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sins. So now our great God isn't just the creator of all things, but now he is my savior. And yet here I still sit this morning, anxious, conflicted, frustrated. And so we remind ourselves in the final stanza that when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home, what joy will fill my heart. Then I will bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. I was in a text thread this week. Maybe you've been in some like that where um, your phone just starts going off, right? Like, bzz, 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 bzz. And I, and I look at it, and it's a, a prayer request, an urgent prayer request. And so the, they've invited their network of friends to pray with them. This was a wonderful text thread. And in the midst of it, somebody put this in, and it's just, I love it. I will use it from here on going forward. I don't know who to give the credit to other than the person who wrote it, but don't tell God how big your problems are. 
Tell your problems how big your God is. Don't tell your God how big your problems are. Tell your problems how big your God is. And I think captures what we want to do here this morning as we want to be reminded of how great God is. And so as we kick off the worship initiative this morning, you've got these books, and in the first week, the first chapter, if you will, is focused on the question of what is worship. And so what we want you to see this morning for the very beginning as we kick it off is worship is not about you. It's not about you. We sang it this morning. It's all about Jesus. So we come here together to corporately focus our attention on him and his greatness. There's like a little uh, legend that gets passed around in pastoral circles, in emails and articles. All of us pastors have this dream of this happening. Um, A person greets you in the foyer and they say to you, "Um, I didn't really like that service today. (laughs) And maybe they expound upon it and then you say, that's okay, we weren't worshiping you. Like that zinger, like we're all just waiting to give that zinger, right? I didn't really like that today. Oh, that's okay, because I wasn't worshiping you today, was I? No, I wasn't, because what we do in here isn't about you, is it? It's about Jesus. It's just we dream of those moments to deliver those zingers, but I say that just to make us laugh, but um, it's true, worship is not about any one of us, it's about God. As we try to answer the question this morning, what is worship? Um, you have a definition in your books on page four. It's written by Scott. It's one of many great definitions of Christian worship. You can go and look them up, but Scott has compiled a very good one for us. It says, worship is our reverent and grateful response to the Lord that seeks to honor him and his great attributes and good gifts. If you're in a group, then you're going to work through that definition together in the curriculum that's here. So I'm not going to go through the lesson with you this morning. We're going to actually try to answer the question of what is worship in a bit of a different way. We're just going to come at it this morning of of just doing a good old-fashioned word search. What does worship mean? Well, let's look it up in a dictionary. So if you look it up in a dictionary, I'll tell you what it says. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary says, Worship is reverence offered to a divine being or supernatural power, which is a good definition. I would want to give a little commentary to that and say, well, I think worship can be applied to things that aren't divine. I think oftentimes we worship ourselves. We can worship other people. We can worship things. And so it's not, I wouldn't say it's necessarily ascribed to the divine, but reverence offered a divine being or supernatural power. If you take that English word that we have and you look it up in sort of the history of the word, you can see where that pops up in the English language a few hundred years ago, and that's where the word comes from, and so then you see those roots are the words worth and the word ship. So we put these two words together and we got our word worship. So fundamentally, when a word first appeared in our language, it meant that person has worth, and now I will in some way express the worth of that person or thing in some way, and so that's the root of the idea of worship in our language. Worth, I will subscribe that worth to that individual. And so if you go back into the old English, they're using it in in relation to royalty, right? Like this lord or this king has worth, and so this is how I'll respond. But now let's remind ourselves that the English language is only so old, and this book wasn't originally written in English, was it? So the Old Testament was originally written in the Hebrew language, and this New Testament was originally written in the the, uh, Greek language. And so you flip in your New Testament to where you find the word worship, and you'll find it all over the New Testament. 
What Greek word is it that they're translating into English as worship? That's the question. It's not an easy question to answer because Greek, like English, has a lot of synonyms, right? I might say worship, you might say praise. There's lots of different words we can use to communicate worship. So it is in the Greek language. And so, but the majority of the time, we can say this, the majority of the time when you see worship in the New Testament, it is the Greek word, and I gotta look into my notes and forgive me for my pronunciation, proskune. So there's other Greek words, but this is the majority of time it's used, proskune, and it means to kiss the hand towards one in a token of reverence. You may have seen that done in certain religious circles. It means to fall upon the knees and touch the ground with forehead as an expression of profound reverence. So you're reading through the Bible and you see the word worship, and that's the Greek word. So that's what happens when we try to translate the Bible from Greek into English. Really smart men and women praying, seeking God's direction, come across this word in the Greek that says to fall down on one's face. And they say, that means worship. Let's just shorten that concept to worship. Our audience understands that. So when you're reading through the account of Jesus' birth and you get to the story of the wise men coming, right? we've all heard that story. It's in Matthew chapter 2. And in verse 2, it says that these wise men came from the east to worship Jesus. The literal translation of that word is the wise men came from the east to kiss the hand of Jesus. Or it means the wise men came from the east to bow down with their knees on the ground and their foreheads to the ground to Jesus. That's what they came to do. That's why it says later on that they fell down and worshiped him. So in Matthew chapter 8, verse 2, a leper approaches Jesus. A leper approached Jesus and bowed low before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What's interesting is, is depending on what translation of the Bible you have in front of you or on your phone, there are so many English translations of the Bible now. If you've got the King James Version or the New International Version or the ESV or the NASB and all the others, depending on what Bible's in front of you, some will translate it just as I read it. A leper approached and bowed down before him. But other Bibles will put in there, and a leper approached and worshipped him. So that's what we're doing with the Greek language as we translate it into English. We're trying to make this decision. Okay, what is happening here? And so they're bowing down, they're worshiping. It's the same word. Matthew 14, 33. Jesus walks on water. We've all heard that story, I hope. Jesus is able to walk on water. He cuts back into the boat with his disciples and it says this. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are the son of God. The people that were in the boat fell to their knees, put their heads to the bottom of the boat and said, truly you are the son of God. That's what probably happened in the boat. And so with this idea in mind and you read through the New Testament, it should sort of open up your imagination a bit as you're reading scripture as to what is worship. But let's say you flip to the Old Testament and you see the word worship all over the Old Testament. Well, we have the same problem. There are various Old Testament words that can be translated as worship. But the majority of the time, it is this Hebrew word shacha. And so whenever they see that word, they put worship. And that word means to bend, to kneel, bow down, sink down to one's knees. Same idea. So in Exodus chapter 20, when we're being given the Ten Commandments, that's in Exodus 20, the second of the Ten Commandments, maybe this sounds familiar, he tells the people not to bow down to any false gods. He's saying don't worship them. He's saying don't bow down to any false gods. That's why whenever you flip over to Daniel chapter 3, we went through Daniel not too long ago as a church, and in Daniel chapter 3 is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
It's a gold statue in the square. Everyone else is bowing down to it. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, I'm not going to bow down. They're saying, I'm not going to worship a false god. That's what Jesus or God was after when he wrote the Ten Commandments, and that's what Daniel chapter 3 is illustrating for us. We don't bow down to false gods. So throughout the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the majority of the time when you see worship, it's saying to you, on your knees, head to the floor, that's what it is. So we read scripture and we try to apply it to our lives. So here's an application for us. When was the last time that you got on your knees as you worshiped God? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I had to answer that question for myself as I was doing this, and so I got down on my knees because it had been, I couldn't remember the last time. And I'll just let you know, it's a sort of a strange feeling. It's a sort of a strange feeling for a non-denominational pastor's kid. It's probably not a strong feel, a strange, as strange a feeling for those who in the audience who are Catholic or maybe you used to attend a Catholic church, then it might feel more normal. But for me, I only ever saw people getting on their knees to pray when I was growing up if I was on a TV show and people were kneeling by their bedside to pray before they get in bed at night, which is a, a wonderful r- rhythm of life. So our posture, our, our physical bodies aren't the point, right? That's not the point of the sermon this morning. It's not that whenever you worship, you should always be on your knees. God is after your heart. He's not after your knees, okay? So that's not the application. I'm not calling in to question your worship this morning. We all stood and worshiped, and we all, if we were singing along, sang the words that we bow down. But we weren't actually bowing down, and that's okay. It reminds me of growing up in my little country church, um, sitting in the pews, singing, stand up, stand up for Jesus. If you think on it too hard, you might feel a tinge of guilt, but that's not the point. Um, it's okay to sing we bow down while you're standing or you're sitting, right? God is after your heart, um, so we don't have to be legalistic about these things. However, our physical posture isn't the main point, but it seems relevant. It seems relevant that that is the original meaning of the word, so that whenever we're answering the question this morning at the very start of our, our worship focus, what is worship, I feel like an appropriate way to answer the question of what is worship is to just simply say, well, this is worship. This is worship. This is, this is what it is. If it's not this, then it's this. This is worship. And so if you think of the definition as that way, well, what does that mean? What is, how does that affect our understanding of worship? And the way it affects me is in two words, submission and humility. If you're on your knees with your head to the floor, It is a picture of humility and submission. It is a physical demonstration of humility and submission. I think we can learn from that. And I I think Psalm chapter 95 can help us. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn to Psalm 95. We'll put it on the screens for you. You're welcome to find it on your phone. But in Psalm chapter 95, what you're going to hear is the psalmist at the beginning try to create some humility in the listener. And then at the end, you're going to hear the psalmist trying to help the listener see that you need to submit to God. So let me read it for us. It's from Psalm chapter 95. I'm reading it out of the English Standard Version. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Make us, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. 
Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." What I want us to see from that, obviously at the very beginning there's this beautiful call to worship. Let's come and let's sing together. But then what he does in verses three to five is he reminds us of our humble posture before the king that we're worshiping. He is a great God. He's a king above all gods. His hands are the depths of the sea. And as well as the heights of the mountains, the sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. What the author is doing is he's calling our attention to creation. He's saying if we're going to worship God, let's just start this way. Let's remind ourselves of the created world that we see around us every day. And that ought to provoke humility in your heart. As you look out at creation, you ought to fall to your knees in a spirit of humility and be profoundly humble. That's Paul's logic in Romans chapter 1, but you don't even have to be the Apostle Paul. You don't even have to be a Christian to make this point or even to agree to this point. You could have an atheist on the stage up here with me today and we would all agree that if you're standing in the path of a hurricane, you are gonna have humility. You can't be proud in the path of a tornado, can you? Thunderstorms produce humility. Nature out there, God's created world provokes humility in the human heart. Look at pictures of space. If you're tracking with those kind of things, you see these pictures that have come back from space over the last year, and they're just phenomenal as we see just how much bigger space is than any of us ever imagined, and now we're seeing pictures of it. And what that does to every human being at some level is it provokes a level of humility. Wow, I am small compared to how great this created world is. Stand at the edge of Niagara Falls. Stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Stand with your toes in the sand at the shore of the ocean and try to have a proud and haughty spirit like you're the most important person in the world. No, like nature provokes humility. And so you can go online and you can look this up. You can do a little little bit of quick research and you'll find all these secular people writing articles about the value of nature for us as human beings. A lot of these are coming out of the pandemic and all of our time inside, but beyond that, there is all of this, these studies coming out about how important to our health to be out in nature is. It contributes to our physical well-being. They say it reduces our blood pressure, our heart rate, muscle tension, and production of stress hormones. Now, why is that? Why would me going on a walk in nature cause my blood pressure to settle in at a healthy level? Well, either subtly or not subtly, what I would argue is it's because you're out there realizing, oh wow, I don't 
make the flowers bloom. I don't make the leaves fall. I have no control over the clouds in the sky. Like everywhere I am all around me isn't my responsibility. It's not, it's not me in control. And that what it does is it settles us. It gives us some rest for our hearts, for our tension, for our stress hormones are able to settle and be like, oh, right, I'm not in control. Our non-religious friends can see this. Now, they're going to name it differently. They're going to name it nature and not creation. But the point is that we can all experience it. What we need to do is maybe help them see what's going on there. But what we can all understand and appreciate together is that God has created this world that when we look at it, when we meditate on it, we are reminded of who he is, his greatness. It provokes in us a humility that isn't just good for our souls, but for our bodies we bow down as an expression of humility we worship as an expression of humility we don't tell God how big our problems is we tell God our problems how big our God is that posture of humility is what worship does for us so on the topic of humility I have an illustration now let me give a disclaimer it's not a great illustration doesn't really tie in to humility like I want it to, but I have to give it. I'm bound to my word. Okay. Modeling humility. Last week at the end of the service, I made a wonderful illustration of grace. Grace was this topic last week. We should give each other grace. We should receive God's grace. And so I said, I gave my wife grace this morning because I went out and got in my car and it was covered with ice and she took my ice scraper. And I said, oh, that made me so mad. But I decided then and there I would extend God's grace to her. And, I, and it was like this wonderful illustration and it inspired you and it made me look like this hero, a giver of grace. And then my wife was sitting there the whole time listening to me say it and then uh, later in the Foyer, she reminded or told me that she didn't touch my ice scraper. I said, yeah, you did. She said, no, I didn't. And you just made a fool of yourself because I didn't touch your ice scraper. And I, so I go out to the car and I open the door and I look under the seat and I think to myself, she put it in there between services. She put it back. No, um, apparently um, she never touched the ice scraper. And it was just under the seat the whole time. And so I need to just model some humility and say I was wrong. And uh, um, she, she's wonderful. And I didn't, <laughs> she didn't take the ice scraper. Okay, that's humility. Um, maybe that can make mem- humility memorable for you. Um, but worship is about humility and submission. So submission is Psalm 95 verses 6 to 11. So once you fall to your knees in worship, once verse six says, come, let us worship, let us bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our maker. In that posture, it is a posture of submission. And so in that posture, he says, oh, he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hands. Today, if I hear his voice, I will not harden my heart. That's language of submission. That's from my knees saying, now I'm vulnerable. You're great and I am low and vulnerably before you now, I am listening. It's like a a peasant coming into the presence of a king, falling to his knees in reverence and saying, what would you have me to do, king? I'm listening. And so in this moment, then in the psalm, it says, okay, in that moment, it's great. You're humble and you're submissive. Now here, don't harden your heart. 
Listen to what God has to say to you now. Listen to God. And so that is what is happening in worship. We are humble, and then we have this submissive spirit where we're listening to what God says so that we can then obey what he says. But throughout human history, throughout the record of the Bible, that is not oftentimes what human beings do. And so that's why the psalmist says, don't harden your heart like they did at Meribah and Massa. They saw my works and they put me to the test. So to, what happened at Meribah and Massa? So in order to answer that question, I got a little, give a little context, so allow me to uh, tell you a Bible story. All right, so if you're familiar with the storyline of the Bible at all, the children of Israel at one point find themselves in bondage and slavery in Egypt. Egypt at the time is one of the greatest countries in the, on the face of the earth. A massive military, they have a booming economy, and they got that way on the backs of their slave labor, the children of God, the Israelites. But the children of God are calling out to God, saying, deliver us from this bondage of slavery. God hears their prayer, taps Moses on the shoulder, and says, go, deliver my people out of slavery in Egypt. Well, that's an impossible situation, because they're the captives of Egypt. There's no way they can be liberated. But they are. The ten plagues. The ten plagues come and they just rack the, the nation of, of Egypt. And so on the tenth plague is this uh, angel of death is going to come over the land and a firstborn son in every home is going to die unless they take the blood of a spotless lamb and they put the blood of that lamb over the doorposts of their houses. And then they will be spared the angel of death if they will listen and submit the voice of God, they will be saved. They do that. Angel of death comes. Egypt is just wrecked with death. Pharaoh calls up Moses in the middle of the night and says, get out of my land, you and all of the slaves. Take them away before we're all dead. They load up and they go. Do you know like an interesting detail that just doesn't get told very often in this story? The Israelites don't leave as poor slaves. The Israelites leave with the wealth of, of Egypt. It says in Exodus 12, 35 to 36, the Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people and they gave them whatever they asked for so they plundered the Egyptians. So whenever they, Pharaoh says, get out, apparently Moses and the Israelites say, we're on our way, we're loading up, but on our way out of town, um, I'll take that, and I'll take that, and I'll take that, and I'll take that. And the Egyptians were responded and gave them whatever they wanted. So they leave with the gold and the silver and the clothing of the Egyptians with them. And we think God can't answer our prayers. God is a great God. He can do great things. We've seen him work. Then they get to the edge of the Red Sea, right? That's where the story goes after that. They're headed to the promised land, but uh-oh, we ran into the Red Sea. And they look behind them and they realize like, oh, Pharaoh's changed his mind. Here comes the Egyptian army. He wants his slaves back. There's nowhere for us to go. There's just a Red Sea. Behind us is the Egyptian army. We're stuck. What can God do? And God parts the Red Sea and they pass through on dry land. Once they're on the other side, the Egyptian army is in the Red Sea. God brings the waters back down, decimates the Egyptian military. So they stand on the other side of the Red Sea. They look back at the nation of Egypt, who was their captors, who they thought it was impossible for them to ever be delivered from. And now the Egyptian nation has no military. Their gold and their silver and their clothing are with the children of God. Their economy is wrecked because their agriculture is wiped out from the plagues. Their livestock has been wiped out from the plagues and now their whole industry that was built upon the backs of slave labor is now decimated. And God says, you have seen what I can do. 
Why are you going to put me to the test? Children of God do their best to not put God to the test, but they're out in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, and they get hungry. And God says, okay, I will literally make food appear in the morning on the ground for you. I'll literally make food fall from heaven. It's called manna as you read the story. It's like, what what can God not do? So they're wandering in the wilderness, and the Israelites say, well, that's fine, but I'm thirsty. I'm so thirsty. And that's what happens at Meribah and Massa. At Meribah and Massa, the children of God say, why did you bring us out of Egypt to die of thirst? And God says, you have got to be kidding me. You have seen my work. Why are you putting me to the test? You know what I can do. You know what I have done. But they didn't want to submit. They took God's character and his mighty deeds for granted. They say, yeah, God did some things in the past, but I don't feel him right now. And right now I'm thirsty. And God describes that as a hardness of heart. And it is really easy for us to have a hard heart. We have even more to look back on. We don't just have the story of the Exodus. We have all these other stories. We have all the stories in this room to look back on. And so the challenge for us is, okay, today, today, it's 11.50, today, Sunday, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. I don't know what God's going to speak to you today. Maybe he already has. Maybe he said, you need to stop this. Or maybe God is speaking to you and saying, you need to start this. Or he's saying, you need to continue this. Or maybe the voice of God is just speaking to you through the songs, through his word, just through your own heart. He is speaking to you, I love you. You are mine. You are valuable. I want you. I see you. If you hear God's voice today, do not harden your heart. Because what we do in worship is we come before him humbly. We fall to our knees and we submit to him and we say, I want to hear your voice. I hear your voice, God, and now my desire is to submit to you. I hear you speaking and I don't want to harden my heart against what you're saying. That doesn't mean the Red Sea is going to part for you. That doesn't mean the sickness is going to go away. But we pray as we've been taught to pray by our Savior, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look to Jesus, our Savior, in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross. He spent some time in worship, didn't he? He was on his knees in the garden. And what did he pray? He prayed, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me but nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And so in a spirit of humility and submission, we say, I know that you're going through some hard times. I know things are dark. Life can be difficult and frustrating and depressing. And your suffering might get worse before it gets better. That's the story of Jesus. He died. And then he rose from the dead. And you and I are gathering here this morning because Jesus rose from the dead. 
And so no matter what can happen to you this week, no matter how dark things can get this week, you know that death is the worst possible thing. And even when we die, we resurrect a new life in him. And so we worship him. We worship him because he rose from the dead. We kiss his hand. We bow at his feet. We confess that he has the power over death. He has the power over all things. And we submit to his will in our lives and we worship him. Verse six is the centerpiece of this psalm. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. A literal translation of those words is come in. We bow ourselves, we bend, we kneel. That's what it says. We bow ourselves, we bend, we kneel before our Lord, our maker. It's almost like the author's trying to get us a point. Listen, bow down, bend your knee, kneel. And so in a application of this as we go here in just a moment if you're physically able I'm going to invite all of us to take a knee